And if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Psalm chapter 20. A couple of weeks ago when I was introducing uh, Psalm 18, I, I kind of made the point that Psalm 1 and 2 serve as a kind of an editorial note, helping us understand more about the rest of the Psalter, the rest of the Psalms. Psalm 1 being about the righteous man and his ways. Psalm 2 being about God's anointed king and God's plans to deliver that king from the, um, from the rage of the nations and to set him as king over all of the earth. And so it is Psalm 2, again, that I believe is informing us as we come to Psalm 20. Let's have the eternal anointed king of God from Psalm 2 in our minds as we read from Psalm 20. One other note before we stand to read today. This psalm is a liturgical psalm. It is designed for collective worship. Uh, the, the, the voicing is created in such a way that the, the people of God join together in a collective prayer, and then maybe the king or the priest uh, gives a response, there's sacrifices going on, and then the, the people join in in a refrain at the end. And so that's a little different from most of the psalms that we've been studying. In fact, most all of them thus far have been I and my language. And here we have the people of God joining together, uh, voicing a prayer collectively. So just kind of keep that in your mind as well. And then one final phrase to set the tone and set our understanding before we read this psalm. And that is, by faith, David wrote Psalm 20 with the intention that the people of God would collectively pray for God's anointed king as the king represented them in battle. David knew that the success of the people was bound up in the success of their king. And he also knew that the king's success in battle would bring honor and glory to the name of the Lord. And so that's kind of the, the setting, the, the, main, the main idea as we stand to read together Psalm 20. So will you join me in standing as we read this text together? To the choir master, a psalm of David. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Thank you for standing in honor of it. You may be seated. There are a number of ways that commentators have broken apart this psalm uh, in trying to outline and find a theme. And I just want you to know I spent a great deal of time doing my best to try and understand the voicing of this psalm. Uh, good and godly Christians might disagree, but here is my best effort to uh, giving a basic form to what's happening. Verses 1 through 5 appear obviously to be a collective prayer. 
uh, the, the people of God are joining collectively in prayer, and they're p- praying an indirect, an oblique prayer to God uh, about the king. May God bless you. The, the you in one through five is singular. It's not may God bless y'all. It's may God bless you, the king. Okay? And so the people are joining together in a, a voiced prayer that apparently David has written for them to pray collectively for the king. Then in verse uh, 6, now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. This is the first singular phrase, and I believe this is the king. This is where uh, some uh, commentators might say this could be the priest attending the sacrifice that may have said, now I know the Lord saves his anointed, and he's talking about uh, the king in front of him who is presenting the offerings. But I think the king himself is the one who says this confident Uh, victorious claim. I know the Lord will save me. He will give me victory in battle. And then he continues, I think, in verses 7 and 8, to speak as the head of state, to speak as the head of the people of God, the nation of God, uh, as though a president or king might speak on behalf of his people. Some chariots, some trust in horses, but we, the king speaking, we, the nation, we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And so I think verses 6 through 8 are scripted for the king. And then verse 9 is scripted once again for the people in refrain to respond. And when they say, um, O Lord, save the king, may he answer us. That he, I think, is once again indirect. I think what they're saying is, Lord, save the king. May the Lord answer us when we call. Uh, This is speaking in indirect language. So uh, that's my humble submission to you. Uh, You study it yourself and and determine, but with that understanding, with that voicing, you've got verses 1 through 5 and verse 9 that are the people praying for their king. And then you have verses 6 through 8 where the king is declaring his faith in victory that, that God will bring victory in battle. Because this is a war psalm. This is a psalm that is is declared before uh, battle. So with that general understanding of the voicing and this liturgical psalm as our starting point, I developed two points for the outline today, one for the collective praying people and one for the king and his voice. Uh, And then I have three takeaways for us by application. So let's dive into our outlines. I hope you got one as you came in first. Point number one about this liturgical psalm is that Psalm 20 taught God's people— to pray collectively for their king because his success in battle resulted in their joy. The people knew that the king's victory brought them victory as well, brought them safety and peace. And so they were taught to pray for the anointed one of God. Again, a psalm to be recited before war. We know David as a man of war, a man of great battles. He was the first to fully and finally conquer those who had occupied the promised land. His victories in battle brought about an unprecedented peace that was characterized in the reign of his son Solomon. There was peace throughout all of the land. But the sound of chariot wheels and the hoofbeat of horses was not too far off in the distance as this psalm was being recited. But before the king would ever engage in battle... He knew he must first engage the Lord in worship, offering sacrifices to him. And as he's doing so, there are onlooking Israelites that were there to pray this collective prayer. They begin in verse 1 by asking God to answer the king's requests 
in the day of his trouble. They pray that the name of the God of Jacob would protect him. That you, again, is singular. Protect the king. May your name protect him. The God of Jacob and his name, we know it to be revealed in Exodus 3 and 14. He is Yahweh, the deliverer and protector of his people. God had promised his people that he would bless them with his presence, with his countenance, and with his name. The Aaronic blessing in Numbers chapter 6, beginning in verse 24, says, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. To be protected by the name of God of Jacob is a sure and safe place to be. So the people pray for their king, for his protection. And then in verse 3, they ask that God would remember and regard his offerings and burnt sacrifice. Perhaps you can picture in your mind's eye David presenting offering to the priest. The musicians give a musical interlude while the sacrifice is being completed at the end of verse 3, I think. That's Selah could be the, the, the place where uh, the, the priest is finishing up his duties and his work around the altar as the sacrifice is going up before the Lord. Then the people continue in verse 4, asking God to grant and fulfill all of the king's plans. Wouldn't you love to live under a king about whom you could pray, God, give him everything he wants? Fulfill every desire he has. The people will give the king a blank check, so to speak, asking God to fulfill all his plans, grant all his positions, petitions. What kind of man is this king if every plan and purpose of his heart can be trusted? Now, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but ultimately, as we'll explore later in the message, this psalm finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ, our King. He was not only a good man. He's the perfect man. He's a godly man. He is God become man, and he is our Savior, and he's the kind of king about whom you can pray. May God grant every desire you have. Then in verse 5, the people declare that the salvation of the King will be their cause for joy. Do you see that in verse 5? May we shout for joy over your salvation. That your, again, is singular. When you are saved by the God of Jacob, we will shout for joy. Commentator James Johnston asks, Why would the people celebrate when God saved their anointed king? Well, the king represents them, and their life is bound up in his. If the king wins a great battle, the nation has won a great battle. If the king loses, the nation is defeated. So by rescuing the king, God is rescuing and blessing the people as a whole. And so this psalm taught men and women in Old Testament times that their lives were bound up in the life of the anointed one of verse 5. The anointed one is the Hebrew word that we transliterate Messiah. Their lives are bound up in the life of Messiah. His victory would be their victory. His salvation would be their joy.
And I just submit to you what an amazing prefiguring of the way our lives as God's people are bound up in the life of our Messiah. Scripture in the New Testament, I have been crucified with Christ. I am united to Christ by faith. We are his bride. We are his body. In Adam, we die, but in Christ, we are made alive. This psalm taught the people to pray for the anointed king because his success and his battle, his victory, meant their joy. But secondly, we see that Psalm 20 reminded God's king that victory is certain when the battle is waged in God's name and for his glory. Victory is certain when the battle is waged in God's name and for God's glory. Again, it's at this point that I believe the king is scripted to speak. In verse 6, that phrase, Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed is a hinge point, a turning point. It's equivalent to saying, I have come to the conclusion that the Lord saves his Messiah. Confidently, the king declares a certain victory. The phrase in verse 6 that's translated in the English Standard Version, he will answer him, would more literally be translated as he has answered him from his holy heaven. He has answered him. The conclusion is so certain that in the mind of the king, it's as though the victory has already been won. From a human perspective, there's still a battle that has not yet been fought, but the victory is certain. That's why the proper translation in our English is he will. He will definitely, without a doubt, answer the king. He will save him. Victory is certain because the faith of the in the strength of his army. It's not in the amount of horses or chariots he has, but in the name of Yahweh. The battle belongs to him, and the king's victory will result in the exaltation of the name of the Lord. He says in verse 7, as many of you know this particular verse from this psalm, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Chariots and horses in the Old Testament days were a formidable force. But they also would have brought to mind significant victories for the people of God. Think about Exodus chapter 14, when the horse and the rider are drowned into the sea, the chariots of Egypt being washed away. And then in Judges chapter 4, the river Kishon, there's another victory where horses and chariots didn't matter. Yahweh was victorious. As I was studying this text, one commentator pointed me towards Deuteronomy 17. And in chapter 17 of Deuteronomy, the the instructions to Israel's king was this, and to the people of God. In verse 14, it begins, When you come into the land, the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and, and they say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only, here's the key, he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. Instead of multiplying horses and chariots, the king was to revere 
the law of the Lord. Verse verse 18, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. Now just pause for a moment and tell me if that does not sound like a king who also meditates on the law of God day and night, Psalm 1. You see these connecting points once again where Psalms 1 and 2 Point to the king who delights in the law of the Lord, who loves Yahweh. And then think back with me to all of the numerous battles and deliverances, starting in Exodus, Joshua, Judges. You can think of a number of times when God preferred a smaller army. Gideon comes to mind. God preferred the deck stacked against him, so to speak. Why? To demonstrate his glory. To demonstrate his power all the more. When he achieves victory for his people, where victory seems unlikely or even impossible. King David learned the kind of king God wants isn't one who will primarily focus on securing and readying horses and chariots for battle, but one who will obey the Torah and go and offer sacrifices to Yahweh and trust in him and in his name for deliverance. Oh, there is undoubtedly a battle for the king to fight, but his ultimate trust is in the name of the Lord. So we come once again to another beautiful psalm, and we are reminded uh, from it about the Old Testament and about the King and the Messiah to come. But for our sakes today, when we ask the question in 2021, how do we respond to a text like this? I want us to do so from a New Testament perspective. So by way of application, let's remember how Jesus interpreted the Old Testament. After he had risen from the dead, he appeared to his disciples. And in Luke 24, verse 44, we read that he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Jesus had a hermeneutic. That's a fancy seminary word for a way of interpreting Scripture. And his interpretation of Scripture should be our interpretation as well. The law and the prophets and the Psalms point to Jesus, point to him. So we need, from this side of Calvary and this side of the empty tomb, to look back to Psalm 20. Not just with eyes on what David and the kings of Israel and the people of Israel use this psalm for, but with Christ, our King, in view. Because it is in the greater context of Scripture that we know that the anointed servant king from David's royal line is Jesus Christ. So with that New Testament perspective, let's employ this psalm in three ways. First, we should recall Christ, our King's 
day of trouble with gratefulness. Day in quotation marks. (laughs) Recall Christ our King's day of trouble with gratitude in our hearts. Verse 1 says, May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. That is the King, the anointed Messiah. Can we all just agree that Christ's whole life was a day of trouble? Trouble mingled uh, throughout his life. But it was God who answered him and protected him and ultimately vindicated him when he raised him gloriously from the dead. John Gill writes, All the days of Christ were days of trouble. He was a brother born for adversity. In fact, Jesus' life was full of hardship. He was a refugee. His parents fled to Egypt shortly after he was born. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. But even more particularly, it was a day of trouble with him when he was in the garden. Heavy and sore amazed with sweat, as it were, drops of blood falling on the ground, and his soul exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. But most especially, this was his case when he hung upon the cross. A day of trouble when he bore the sins of his people and endured the wrath of the Father. The haunting hymn, Were You There?, comes to mind. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Oh, sometimes it causes me to tremble. We reflect and recall the day of trouble when we think about our king and his day of trouble Andrew Bonar writes this insightfully. He says, This psalm is the prayer which the church might suppose to be offering up had all the redeemed stood by the cross. If we were there, and with with the eyes of faith that we have now, believing that Jesus did die for us and he is our king, we would be praying, Lord, help him. He's in the day of trouble. Answer him. Give him relief. Send protection. If we were there, Messiah, as he would have read these words of Psalm 20, would know that elsewhere in the past, the sympathy that he longed for in the garden was there for him. When his disciples fell asleep, he could remember that in his uh, ancestors, in his line of Messiah, people had prayed for the king. People had prayed for the Messiah, that God would be with him and help him. It is thus, Andrew Bonar says, a pleasant song of the sacred singer of Israel to set forth the feelings of the redeemed in their head, whether in his sufferings or in the glory that was to follow. Of course, we can't necessarily go back in time and pray this prayer at the cross, but the sentiment should be ours when we recall Christ our King and his day of trouble. But secondly, we can use this psalm to reflect on Christ our King's intercession for us with joy. We reflect on Christ our King's intercession with joy. In this psalm, the King is bringing sacrifices 
and burnt offering to the priests. He's doing so from his office as king to represent the people in battle. But the priest also had an office to fulfill. His role was to intercede for the king and the people of the nation as he attended to the altar. But we come to understand in the New Testament that the one who fulfilled the role of king also fulfills the role of high priest forever. He's a priest, Hebrews tells us, after the order of Melchizedek because he has an indestructible life. And God ceaselessly respects his once-for-all sacrifice and burnt offering. You see, even before Jesus left the earth, he interceded for the disciples and all who would believe in him in what is often titled the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. And notice what he prays in verse 11. I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, hear it. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Keep them in your name, the name of the God of Jacob. You've kept me, the Messiah, the King, in the name of the God of Jacob. Keep them in your name. Jesus prayed for you. He interceded for you. Romans tells us that Christ's intercession for us did not stop before his death. He asked the question, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is seated at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Christ is pleading his offering for us as high priest. But to fulfill that priestly offering, we should reflect on the sacrifice and burnt offering of verse 3, so to speak. Two saints from the 11th and 12th century asked the question, what was his sacrifice? And they answer it, the humiliation that brought him from heaven to earth, the patient tabernacling in the womb of the Holy Virgin, the poor nativity, a hard manger, a weary flight to Egypt, a poor cottage in Nazareth, the doing of good and the bearing of evil, miracles, sermons, teachings, being called a glutton, and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. They attributed his wondrous deeds to Beelzebul. He sacrificed. He gave up his position for us. But then what was his Holborn offering? Remember, the Holborn offering pictured at the Passover was the lamb roasted whole with fire. A whole offering. And so they ask, what part, what limb of Christ did not agonize during his passion? There was the thorny crown on his head, nails in his hands and feet, reproaches that filled his ears, a multitude that he gazed on with his dying gaze, vinegar and gall, tastes, evil odors of the hill of death and corruption, plowers that plowed upon his back and made long furrows. His most sacred face was smitten with the palm of the hand, spit on, and his head crushed with the reed, beaten with the reed. Jesus intercedes for us by the merits, listen, of his own sacrifice and his own body and blood as a whole burnt offering. So the writer of Hebrews tells us, every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ 
had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Listen, brothers and sisters, the prayers of the Old Testament people of God from Psalm 20 have come true. The Father does remember Jesus' offering. The Father does regard Jesus' burnt sacrifice. The Father does grant Jesus his heart's desires. The Father does fulfill all his plans. The Father does give him every petition that he asks for you and me. The Father does answer him. He is our priest king who ever lives to intercede for us. That's good stuff. He lives to intercede for us, and God does grant him every single desire he asks. But there's one final way in which Psalm 20 can be applied for us today as New Testament believers, and that is for us to consider that because of our relationship to this king, as our head, we being the body of Christ, his church has not yet concluded her day of trouble. We are in Christ. He is our head. But as Jesus prayed, they are in the world. And so we have not yet finished our day of trouble. One commentator wrote, It may now perhaps be said, Jesus is out of the reach of trouble. He is highly exalted. And some might say he does not want our sympathies or prayers. True, but we may still pray for him. How? Consider with me Saul in the New Testament. Book of- he is breathing out murderous threats on the church. And then God gloriously appears to him in light. And he says to him in Acts 9, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The King of kings and Lord of lords, why are you persecuting me? Matthew twenty-five forty. The king will answer him in the final day, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. We can pray for our king by praying for the members of his body. So we remember Christ our king's members in prayer. In Psalm 72, Solomon prophesies about the anointed king. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. Listen, in our prayers for the suffering saints, we can pray continually for the king. When you skin your knee, your head does not go and try and, you know, fix it. No, the head directs, motivates, impels one member to care for the other. By the God given to me, Paul writes, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, 
but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Romans 12 and verse 4. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. So, brothers and sisters, when we pray for other Christians, we are praying for those who are a part of the body of King Jesus. The reformer John Calvin commented on this psalm, and he said, quote, God had not promised that his people would be saved in any other way than by the hand and conduct of the king whom he had given them. In the present day, when Christ is now manifested to us, let us learn to yield him this honor, to renounce all hope of salvation in any other quarter, and to trust to that salvation only which he shall bring to us from God his Father. And of this salvation, we shall then only become partakers when, being all gathered together in one body, under the same head, we shall have mutual care for one another. And when none of us will have his attention so engrossed with his own advantage and individual interests as to be indifferent to the welfare and the happiness of others. We will become partakers of this salvation when and only when we don't look to our own interests, but the interests of others, the mutual care of his body. Listen, let that land on you and sink in. Because each and every one of us has our victory in the same head, in the same king, namely King Jesus. We are part of his body. And because we are part of his body, we can't merely be concerned about ourselves. We must care for others in this body. This local body of believers called Leonardtown Baptist Church is the most tangible way, hear this, that you can fulfill the desires of King Jesus, our victor. This local body is the most tangible way you can fulfill the desires of our King Jesus. In a much greater way, as we close today, let's remind ourselves that participation in this local body is a tangible way you can be a part of the body of Christ. But it is a visible representation of a much greater metaphysical reality. Meta means above. It's above physics. It's above the physical. It's supernatural. There's a supernatural reality of the body of Christ that we see when we see one another and serve one another here at Leonardtown Baptist Church. There's a greater body of Christ, and that metaphysical reality is called the church, the Catholic church, the little c Catholic church. That's why the Apostles' Creed says we believe in the Holy Spirit. Holy Catholic Church, little c, universal church. There is a greater reality in which we participate. Sure, when you get saved, you are baptized, so to speak, by the Holy Spirit into the name of Jesus Christ. You you are saved into his body metaphysically. But when you are baptized here, you show the world tangibly, visibly, in this local manifestation of the body that you belong to his body. You are a part of us. 
And so we participate in a greater reality, which is why, as part of the universal church, any and all of us who have Christ as our head have other believers even around the world as our members. So when our members in Haiti and Afghanistan are suffering, we should absolutely care for and pray for them. Hebrews 13.3 says, Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Josh Manley is a pastor of RAK Evangelical Church in the United Arab Emirates. He wrote this article that I have here today stating that pastors in Afghanistan with whom he had built relationships have been emailing and messaging him the last few days, anxious for prayer. He writes, quote, One house church leader sent me a picture of the small room he was hiding in with his family. He wrote, This is where I'm living. We are hidden right now in different areas. Another pastor says, quote, We can't go out like normal. It's dangerous. We moved to one of my friend's houses, but it's not safe at all. A reporter at World reports that pastors say that the Taliban has contacted them, saying they are coming for them. And he lists some specific ways that we, the body of Christ, can pray. One, for physical protection and provision. He says, quote, I asked one brother if he was presently in physical danger, and he said, not only me, but my family too, because of me. So we need to pray that our sovereign God would physically protect our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. Boldly go to the throne of the king of the universe and plead with our God to restrain evil and confuse the plans of evildoers. Pray also for physical provision. One brother said, pray for financial issues because we can't take money out of the bank and the ATMs are empty. A number have specifically asked that we would pray for visas to get out of the country Most of us are in no place to help these brothers and sisters get visas today. But we do have access to the throne of the universe, so let's ask the Heavenly Father to provide a way out. Could we say it like this today? Some trust in state departments. And some trust in embassies. But we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. Let us pray for a miracle today. We need to pray for spiritual provision Every church leader who had emailed or texted Josh asked that they would stay strong. Pray for the Lord to strengthen their faith. They said, quote, pray that we would stay strong in the Lord who is the sovereign king, end quote. One said, pray for me to be strong in my faith. It's really hard to stay here. So if we're hearing this today, we have the opportunity to ask God to protect and even increase the faith of our brothers and sisters in the Afghan church. They don't know what this Lord's day will bring them, but they can be certain of the promise that he will supply every need of theirs according to his riches and glory. Listen, we gather today at very little cost, if any, to us. They are gathering with the threat of their lives today. Thirdly, the brother pastors in Afghanistan ask for a gospel advance. Uh, Josh says, one brother asked uh, and described the days as dark. He said he felt like they were in a storm. And then he subsequently asked for us to pray for revival. What faith. 
Here's a man whose life is in danger asking us, who enjoy so many privileges and freedoms, to pray that God would open the eyes of the spiritually blind and give life to dead hearts. Wouldn't it be like our God to work in these horrible circumstances to make his great name known? When our Afghan brothers and sisters face terrible uncertainty, we should be like the believers in Acts 12 who themselves face serious threats and persecution, but without ceasing, offered up earnest prayers to God. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may, may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be, de- be delivered from wicked and evil men. And then he concludes his article Pray especially for the Afghans who have no choice but to stay. Such as one brother who has already spent time in prison for his faith in Afghanistan. He assured me again and again. Listen, this is the the guy inside Afghanistan assuring this guy in the United Arab Emirates in safety. He says, I assure you, we can trust that our Lord is mighty and he will care for his children. Our hope, he said, is not in politics but in Jesus, who is the king. This is not escapism. This is biblical, might I add, Psalm 20, faith. When all earthly prospects are completely bleak, and we know that that kind of faith brings great glory and honor to of the God of Jacob. While these days are dark and tragic, remember that God sits on his throne. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. He holds the rulers of this world, the Father does, in derision. And he promises to make the nations, the sons, inheritance, and the ends of the earth his possession. So we, we finish where we started in Psalm 2. Listen, our king is not surprised. Our king is not even unacquainted with their day of trouble. Praise God. Our king won the battle decisively at Calvary, and he will have his bride. Our king told us that in this world, we would have tribulation. But King Jesus also said, take heart, for I have overcome the world. Brothers and sisters, today we pray for the members of our king's body. And know this, Psalm 20 and verse 8 will find its final fulfillment when one day every enemy of our king will collapse and fall, but we will rise and stand upright. At the cross... King Jesus delivered the decisive head blow to the serpent. The decisive head blow to the serpent. Oh, the the tail is still wiggling around right now, but the, the king delivered the decisive blow in the battle he won at Calvary. But Paul promises this, that as it is with our head, so it is with his body. He says in Romans 16, listen, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. His victory is our victory. 
Our lives are bound up in the life of our king, and his smashing victory in battle is promised to be our head-crushing victory too. And that is really good news. And I pray that it happens today, Maranatha.